One word, hugs. I miss the human touch, that personal connection. What I miss the most is having fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ, being able to shake hands and have a good time every week. You know, it's hard for me to say what I've missed the most here at church over the past year, just because I've seen so many great changes that our church has made uh, to serve our community better. And all of those adjustments that we've made, I think will ultimately serve our church and serve God better uh, going forward. I miss seeing our senior adults every month as they gather together for our monthly luncheons, especially all of the delicious food that they bring, especially the deviled eggs. I love a good deviled egg. I am so excited about getting to see kids again. That's one of the biggest things that I've missed. Um, I think just the thing of not having children in the building as much as before, and then to see how much they've grown in that time frame. The things that I've missed over this last year is, is really not being able to serve together. Uh, to get out in the community and uh, just work hand in hand, I don't think there's anything uh, any other area where we can grow more in intimacy is when we serve together in life-changing mission. But what I've been missing during the season of COVID is really getting to have the opportunity for kids to come together uh, to worship in large groups and worship God together. I miss the people. I miss being in corporate worship with all my fellow believers and uh, during praise music, singing and our voices rising to the heaven like incense to our Lord in corporate worship. I have really missed seeing the people's faces and expressions as they interact with others of Cypress Bible Church. It shows how happy they are to be here and really enjoy seeing each other. I really miss corporate worship, fellowship with one another, and just basically doing life together as a church family. I miss the most is being able to come together as a group to delve into the Word of God as a family. I've missed two things predominantly, and both of those are ways that people connect with each other. Um, I've missed the opportunities we've had to have social events like potlucks and things of that nature where people sit around and share a meal together and get to know each other and encourage each other. I've also missed uh, our small groups meeting in person and that opportunity for people to connect in significant ways and help each other along the journey. Last year, the Holy Spirit has put in my mind many names and faces that I have not seen in at least a few months up to a year. Rest assured, when I have the prompting of the Holy Spirit that I pray for you, I long to see you. Hope there is a day coming soon that we can worship together in the presence of our King. This year, I've really missed going over to the preschool area and teaching the large group of kids all the wonderful Bible stories. And I've also missed the big group and jump kids and getting to be the fisherwoman. But most of all, I've missed you. What I've really missed the most is seeing people's faces, being able to scream out hello in the church foyer, whether before, in between, or after church service. The, the high fives and the bro hugs and the side hugs. I have really missed that element of community as a body of believers. Hey, CDC friends, I have missed you. Well, I've missed your smiles, I've missed your faces, I've even missed your hugs, but most of all, I've missed worshiping our faithful God with you in person on Sundays. I hope to see you soon. Good morning, CBC. It is good to see you, as, as Brenda was saying. Um, 
I want to invite you to worship with us this morning. Uh, we're, we're going to sing some songs together. It's a baptism Sunday, um, and it's fitting that we will open this service with a song uh, based on John 3.16, God so loved the world. We're going to sing about the reason that we can be excited about baptism, the, baptism, the reason that we can uh, publicly proclaim the Lord. And so I would, I would ask you uh, to stand with me as we sing.
time of worship.
You may be seated. Good morning and welcome. I'm Brian Carroll, equipping pastor. My privilege to welcome you here at Cypress Bible Church. At Cypress Bible Church, we believe that you begin wherever you're at, whether you've been a long-term believer or whether you are just exploring and uh, who Jesus is. And so we're glad that you're here wherever you're at in that journey. And so part of our process then is becoming more like Jesus. And we have three ways that we encourage you to get involved in order to do that and accomplish that. The first is to gather for life-changing worship, and that's what we're here today, to worship, to learn, to grow, to serve our God. Second thing is that we grow together through life-changing truth. We believe that's best accomplished in some sort of a smaller group setting, whether that be a Sunday morning class or a grow group, and so all kinds of opportunities. If you go out this door and to the left, there's a booth there called the Grow Booth, and that's opportunities to learn more about that. Uh, we do have some classes and groups that are meeting on campus now, so you can go on Sunday mornings, and we'll be looking to start some brand new grow groups this coming fall. Uh, then also we go in life-changing truth, and we believe it's our responsibility to take the good news of Jesus to the people across the street and across the world. And we want to encourage you to become part of that process of sharing that good news with, uh, about Jesus. You and I wouldn't be believers if other people hadn't faithfully done that before. I do have a couple of announcements. Uh, we have a summer fun day coming up a week from Wednesday. It's in lieu of VBS this year, and uh, we uh, need your help. Lots of ways you can help. There's a, things right under the window in the back that'll tell you how you can do that. You can either donate items. We're looking for four volunteers that would greet kids in the morning, take the rest of the day off, and come back in the afternoon and help kids get back into cars. If you can help meet that need, if you can be a prayer partner, and then you can support, if you can support our, our projects that we're doing, a local and global, we'll be giving you more of that information in the next few weeks. But if you can help in any of those ways for next Wednesday, love for you to step out in the foyer and we'll tell you how you can do that. Um, also, uh, that'll be on Wednesday, um, uh, June 23rd, and then also on Sunday, June 27th. Been a little confusion about this, but we have a family night out. That night will be designed and intended for elementary kids and their families, but everybody's welcome to come. Uh, it's a place where we're going to laugh together, learn together, and hopefully grow together as families. And uh, so we encourage you to come, whether you're a young family, whether you have no children at all, or an older family. Everyone's welcome. We would like to know if you're coming just so that we can plan and prepare accordingly. And so there's a little flyers out there hanging up. You can take one. It'll tell you how you can let us know. Or if you have kids, you'd like to register for the uh, kids' um, summer fun day as well. Uh, let's begin with prayer. Lord, thank you for your grace, and Lord, we thank you for the abundance of that. And today, Lord, we come to worship you. And today also, Lord, we want to remember those who, um, who serve our community and sometimes put themselves at risk uh, as, as they serve and work to serve our community. And so, Lord, we want to lift up police officers. We want to lift up all the first responders, whether that be firemen, EMTs, or others who, who run to places where there is need and sometimes danger and hurt. Lord, we ask for your guidance and your protection over them. And Lord, more than that, I would pray that even as they serve in very stressful jobs, that that would cause them to hunger and uh, lean on you and seek for you, uh, Lord, as they, uh, they encounter people who are in very difficult times of life. And Lord, we know that uh, they have the opportunity not only to take care of their physical bodies, but Lord, those who are followers of you to also minister to people spiritually. So Lord, we pray for a spiritual revival in all of our services uh, across this country. Lord, thank you for today, the opportunity we have to worship you. And Lord, we do give you honor and praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to turn your attention to the baptistry. 
Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Evan Wepler. I'm the children's pastor here at Cypress Bible Church, and uh, I'm so excited that we get to celebrate baptisms today. We have a, a few kids that are getting baptized in our two services today. Uh, Jesus left this earth. He said, go make disciples. them." So baptism is for those who believe and are called to outwardly identify I have to say, not terrible, but you go over here. It's a little cold, isn't it? All right, why don't you step right up here? So Colin's going to go ahead and read his testimony for you. I will say that the, the baptistry might be a little full, and so it's, it's doing the overflow. I promise it's not me, if you hear that sound. <laughs> go ahead and read that, Colin. I asked Jesus in my heart a year ago. When I prayed, I asked for forgiveness. I want to be baptized because if people ask me, why are you baptized? I will say, I asked Jesus in my heart to forgive me. I know about Jesus from going to church with my family. Jesus died for our sins. Now I believe in him. My favorite verse is John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that I ever believe in him should not perish, but have an eternal life. Great job, Colin. And so... I'm going to invite the congregation to respond to the following charge with the phrase, I do. As part of this local body of believers, do you agree to encourage Cullen as he follows Jesus and invest in him as God gives you the opportunity? Wonderful. Cullen, I'm going to ask you two questions. Do you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ died for you and has given you eternal life? I do. Do you desire to publicly identify with Jesus through baptism? Come over here. Go ahead and cover your nose. Then upon this declaration of faith in Jesus as Lord, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much uh, for this chance for us to declare the good news through baptism. Uh, just as Cullen entered into the water and rose up, we know that Jesus died and rose up from the dead three days He gives us um, as we follow him. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this place that we can celebrate and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we think about the church growing, uh, we, we get to read in Acts about how Paul baptizes. Um, and it's appropriate that we would sing this next song. One of the phrases in there is, one day we will sing songs together of praise with saints of every age. It's incredible. So we, we, we read about the baptism of the Bible and we experience it here. We get to see the public uh, affirmation of Jesus. And so I'm thankful that we can sing this song together, um, where it ties us together from um, the beginning of, of the church all the way until now. We get to sing it as well. And so uh, if you will stand with me, we're going to sing the song, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues.
10 of 1 Corinthians uh, 15, uh, we read that Paul writes these words, and the, the words of the song that we're about to sing. Uh, and, I, and I worked harder than anyone else, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And so we're going to sing that song together. Um, go ahead and start, my dude. No more forever now to give. 
Tremendous song that is. Uh, Amy and I were away last week enjoying the beach, and uh, that was the first time we've had that kind of vacation since we moved to Texas in 2014. Uh, not counting that one time we went to Galveston and it was full of seaweed, but uh, not counting that time. And uh, that week uh, that we had away was great. I enjoyed that very much. Now, like uh, some of you, both of us have signed up with Bless Every Home. And that's an app that uh, helps you pray for your neighbors, identify your neighbors. And uh, so a couple times a week or so, I get a list of uh, the neighbors to pray for on that particular day. And during uh, the week we were gone, my list included some of the neighbors that I know the best. And so I prayed for Terrell and his wife and family. And uh, when we got home, uh, one of uh, our other neighbors rushed over to tell us that Terrell had died that week. And it was sudden, it was unexpected, he's younger than me, he's in better shape than me, and uh, he died the day before I'd actually been praying for him. The funeral was Wednesday at Church Without Walls. Uh, also, while I was away, yet another of my pastor friends, acquaintances, from Pennsylvania died of COVID-19. Steve Henry was 43. He and uh, his wife Amanda had five school-aged children. And the funeral was Friday. A bit unexpected as well. Also while I was away, one of our CBC men died unexpectedly. Matt was uh, somebody who talked to me virtually every week that I've been here. And uh, sometimes during the week, and uh, when Matt was away working overseas, he would email me regularly. And just a couple of weeks ago, the last time I think it was that I preached, uh, he asked me, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? How can I use the gifts that God has given me? And then abruptly, his earthly life ended. The funeral was yesterday, right here. So while I'm away on the beach getting a tan, people I know are dying. That's sad. And it's grim, and it's exactly why we need 1 Corinthians 15. That's essential. It's the glorious exposition of the resurrection. This is the truth that changes everything. It transforms how you live and it informs how you work and it confirms your outlook for the future. We've been studying this letter written by the Apostle Paul to that church that was located in the city of Corinth. And that church was a mess. And Paul corrected them. That's what this series is about. He corrected them on a bunch of things like sexual sin and spiritual pride and blurred gender lines and overindulging in alcohol and food during a church service and elitism and so forth. But finally, in chapter 15, Paul gets to 
the most important topic. Because some in the church were saying that there was no resurrection from the dead. And so Paul spends 58 verses telling them why the resurrection is real and that it matters. And so by God's grace, we're going to take the next three weeks on this chapter because it is absolutely indispensable. It is a non-negotiable part of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian. Without the truth of the resurrection, existence is pointless, work is meaningless, life is hopeless. So let's see how it begins. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the lives and the destinies of these Corinthian Christians was changed by the good news about Jesus, the gospel God's message to the world. That gospel is the foundation. It's the the truth, the basis for salvation. Now there's lots of things we could talk about here in this, but but one one of the things that might stand out is what does he mean by which you are being saved? Which you're being saved. What what does that mean? And that's that's maybe a little odd to us because often we talk about salvation strictly in the past tense. And so we talk about, well, I was saved when I was a little kid. I was saved when I went to college. I was saved at a Billy Graham crusade. Meaning, that's when I put my trust in Christ as the Savior. But salvation, as Scripture talks about it, has a past and a present and a future aspect. Uh, So let me just point that out to you here as you think about it, that in Christ you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. That's what the New Testament talks about. Just think about it for a moment, that you have been saved. For instance, Ephesians 2, 5, you've been saved from the penalty of sin uh, through faith in Christ, and at the moment you receive the gift of God, you become a new creation. You're reborn into the family of God. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit, and nothing can ever separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. You have been saved. Well, then you are being saved. Philippians 2.12, Ephesians 4.1, Titus 2. It talks about how you, as you live out your identity in Christ, you have been saved, so now you're living out this identity of who you are in Christ. And you learn, Scripture says, to say no to ungodliness. And you have the power in Christ by the Spirit to obey God and to resist temptation. And when you fail, run to Jesus for forgiveness. That's how you are being saved. And then you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 3.15, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. It's the future reality when in the presence of God there is no more sin. You're saved from the very presence of sin. It's that day when evil and pain and temptation and grief and depravity and loss are eradicated and sin is no longer even possible because you've received the goal of your salvation, uh, the, the, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's 1 Peter 1.9. And you are face to face with your Savior. Now Paul says, if that's the truth that you're clinging to, this reality of salvation, past, present, and future, then that salvation is yours. Unless 
He says, if you are, and it expects a, a yes answer, that yes, you are indeed holding fast to this. If you do that, that, that's, that salvation is your reality. He says, unless you didn't really accept that word. It was just a passing fancy. But he encourages, hold fast, cling to the gospel. Now, here comes what I get very excited about. The, the following verses where Paul defines the gospel. He outlines the exact content of the good news. And I, and I can't wait to tell you why this is so important. I hope you grasp it with me. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now you need to appreciate that the Corinthian church was confused and concerned about all kinds of things. We've seen that throughout that letter. They had questions like, should I get married or not? Can I, should I leave my spouse or is that wrong? Should, when can I have sex? Should I abstain from sex? Can I eat food that's been dedicated to idols or should I not do that? Shouldn't I be able to dress and act however I want to? Can I speak in tongues during the worship service? Those are some of the questions, the concerns, the confusion. But here is what's more important than any of those questions and confusions. Nothing is more vital than getting the gospel right. And Paul here gives a four-part definition of the gospel. Jesus died, was buried, was raised, and appeared. This is the earliest creedal statement of the gospel. There's really nothing like it in the New Testament. Even if nothing else had, had survived from the early Christian movement, besides these lines, we'd still have the essence of the gospel and the historic bedrock on which Christianity stands. See, Paul didn't write these words. When he says, here's what I received, those words, Paul didn't write those words. Those predated Paul. Paul is, is quoting what he's been taught. How do we know that? Well, he uses technical language there in verse 3. When, when he says, I, I, I delivered to you, what I received. He used a, when he says I delivered, he uses, he uses the Greek word paradidomai. He says what I received, paralumbano. These Greek words are technical terms that describe the formal transmission of tradition. And so when Paul used these words, the Corinthians knew exactly what he was saying, that, and uh, that he was delivering something that had been trustworthily delivered to him. So here's an example. Uh, this week, um, our personnel committee chair, Mark, asked me for a section from our personnel policy. Um, and he said, well, if you don't have time to find that section, just send me the entire personnel policy. And so I downloaded the entire personnel policy. I emailed it to him. He received it. Then he cut and pasted a, the section that he wanted uh, from that policy into our meeting report. And as a personnel committee, we looked at and discussed that particular section. So, I didn't write the personnel policy, certainly not by myself. Mark didn't write it. No, that had already been created 
in the past, a previously written document. I passed along this previously written document, and Mark delivered what he had received to the rest of the team. That's what Paul did. Say, well, why does this matter? Why are you going into this kind of detail? Well, a, a couple of reasons. I'll show you why it matters and hopefully explain to you what I'm further talking about. Uh, see, it, it matters uh, because th this creed is authentic and it's early. Uh, what, what this creed, in those five verses, it's authentic and it's early. So let me talk about what I mean about each of those. First of all, it's authentic. In 2008, I believe it was, I was asked to uh, write an article where I reviewed 80 different books. Um, and so for weeks, uh, we had books being delivered from all kinds of publishers to our door. And I was given three months to write that article reviewing 80 books. I, I don't think they expected me to read all 80 books cover to cover. I didn't have the time to do that. I actually had a job. Uh, it wasn't, this wasn't my job. Uh, this was a little side gig. So honestly, I did not read from cover to cover all 80 books. Uh, I skimmed all 80 books. And one of those books was Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham. Now at the time, I had no idea how significant this book was because I only skimmed it. But since then, I have returned again and again to this uh, amazing book. And so I want you to see what Bauckham says about this passage from 1 Corinthians 15, how he describes as a scholar what Paul is saying. He says, the terminology is of considerable importance for to hand on a tradition is not just to tell it, and to receive a tradition is not just to hear it. Rather, it means to possess it with a considerable degree of precise memorization. So he's saying those terms that I shared with you from 1 Corinthians 15 are technical terms, and they're pretty significant. Uh, Paul received this tradition from the Jerusalem apostles. And, and Scripture does tell us in Galatians that he visited Jerusalem and he spent two weeks with Peter. And two weeks of conversation with Peter is a lot of conversation. And as one scholar says, we may presume that they did not spend all the time talking about the weather. And so Paul received an oral text which has been closely memorized. These five verses were not written by Paul. Uh, these were passed on to him, taught to him by the apostles. They came directly from those men who had walked with Jesus for three years, who ate with him at the Last Supper, who ran away from him when he was betrayed, who witnessed his torture and execution, who talked with him and ate with him after the resurrection, and witnessed him ascend into heaven. And this gospel outline was passed on from the apostles to Paul, who passed it on to the Corinthians when he planted the church, and now he reminds them, this is the authorized version that you must cling to. You must hold fast to this. So, it's authentic. And second, it's early. It's early. Now, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians about 25 years after the resurrection. But these five verses are much earlier than that. In recent years, almost every New Testament scholar, including those who are atheists, did you know you have New Testament scholars who are atheists? You do. 
Even the atheists agree that this creed appeared within one to three years of Jesus' death. New Testament scholars like Bart Ehrman, who doesn't believe Jesus is God, and uh, Richard Carrier, who doesn't believe in the resurrection, both admit this creed was composed within just a short period after the, re- the crucifixion. Scholar James Dunn argues that we can be entirely confident the tradition was formulated within months of Jesus' death. In other words, this creed might be the very first words that were learned and taught and passed on about Jesus. It's very exciting. So as Jesus' followers went out to make disciples, new converts learned and memorized this creedal formula. And this was the lesson plan for discipleship. This was the lesson plan for the church planting movement that that swept across the Roman Empire. And I would say if there's a scripture that you should memorize, it would be 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7. If there's a passage that your children should memorize, it's this. This is the outline of the gospel, the earliest message we have of Jesus. So, this summary of the gospel, which is what it is, it's an outline, it's a summary, is the foundation for the first sermons preached by the apostles and by Paul. You look at Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 13, this was the outline for those sermons. So let's now focus on the four important phrases in this. The first phrase is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now death, it's a pretty common thing. And I just shared with you three people I know that died last week. Happens all the time. And the death rate still managed to hover right around 100% still. So that's not unusual. Jesus was executed by the government. Also not incredibly unusual, unjustly uh, uh, executed by the government. Also, sadly, not completely unusual, uncommon. What is unique is the purpose of his death for our sins. He died for our sins. And he could do this because he is the perfect son of God who had no sin of his own. So it was for us. Uper is the, uh, the Greek preposition here. And it can mean on behalf of as a substitute. It can mean for our advantage. Jesus died. So since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, Christ took the punishment I deserve for my sin. He died the death I deserve to die. And so that all who transfer their trust to Christ alone escape the judgment of God, the wrath of God against sin. Jesus takes my sin and gives me his righteousness. And this happened according to the Scriptures. Meaning that Christ's death wasn't an unfortunate, unforeseen accident. This was not a plan B or C. This was the plan of God before the foundation of the world. It's happened as God designed. This was the central part of God's salvation story. Christ died for our sins. Second phrase. He was buried. Jesus actually died. His death wasn't an illusion. He didn't faint. Uh, we, the, the Roman officials who had him put to death, they treated his corpse just like all the other corpses of those they executed. 
His body was taken down from the the place of execution and put in a tomb and sealed. And his friends and his family grieved over the one they loved. And the burial of Jesus was not a secret. In fact, we know the name of the man who who, uh, owned the tomb that Jesus was put in. Uh, That man was a member of the court that condemned Jesus. It's not a secret. Uh, The the location of the tomb was not a secret. Uh, It was guarded by Roman soldiers. Jesus was buried. That's part of the gospel message. Third, he was raised the third day. And, and by the way, the verb tenses here switch to the perfect tense. And that's significant because it describes the resurrection not just as a past event, but as a present reality. And you must appreciate this. I, I say this many times, but you've got to appreciate it. The idea of resurrection would have been no more believable to a first century person than it is to you and me today. I mean, it's just, it wasn't like, oh, resurrection happens all the time. No, they would have been just as freaked out about that idea as, as the ordinary person in our society would be today. It wasn't a common thing then either. The first century person would have found it difficult to believe just as people in our digital age do. And that's why even though Jesus repeatedly told his followers that this was going to happen, they didn't get it. Jesus described where he would be killed, that he would be killed, who would kill him, and that he would rise the third day. And he said that repeatedly. And the disciples were going, we don't know what he's talking about. Do you know what he's talking about? Don't get it. Why? It wasn't in their categories. Only after the resurrection that they realized, boy, this, this is what he was talking about. This happened just as he said. Three days. Day one, his body was taken down from the cross and placed in the sealed tomb. Day two, his body lay entombed. Day three, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. He was raised the third day. Part of the gospel. Fourth, he appeared. He appeared four times in this passage. The Greek word othe is used. It's translated as appeared. The verb refers to seeing with the eyes. Orphe. This was an actual experience by, by those who saw Jesus. People saw him. This wasn't hallucination. This wasn't wishful thinking. This was a repeated perceptible event that occurred over 40 days following the resurrection. He names the witnesses here. That's part of the gospel message. Cephas, first of all, which is the Aramaic name for Peter. Peter's the prominent leader in the early church. The gospels record that he was one of the first to see the risen Jesus. He's a witness. Then the twelve. The twelve. All twelve disciples were witnesses of the resurrected Jesus See the 12? Yes, by this time Judas, the betrayer, had already been replaced by Matthias. What was the, what was the criteria for having somebody be part of the 12? It had to be somebody who had been with us the entire time of Jesus' ministry and saw him raised from the dead. So now there were 12. So this happened so closely after the resurrection. Now the, the 12 were 12 again. Next, the group gets larger. 500 at the same time. 
since this creed developed shortly after the crucifixion, many of those people, Paul says, are still alive. You can go ask them that this happened. They can testify. And then James is listed. And I think the assumption is that this is somebody everybody would know. And there's a lot of Jameses. I mean, that was a very common name. It's still a common name today. It's a very common name, but it doesn't identify him. So we assume this is James, the half-brother of the Lord. He must be familiar. And then the apostles. Say, well, aren't that, isn't that the same as the twelve? No. It's a much larger group than the twelve. These are all the sent ones. Those Jesus has sent out. They're witnesses of the appearing of Jesus after the resurrection. Well, well, that concludes this creed that had been passed on to Paul by the Jerusalem apostles, and he passed it on as well. Uh, Paul then, I believe, adds this part himself, verse 8 to 10, where he says, and then last of all, he appeared to me. I saw him too. I'm like one born out of time, he says. And this is the Paul who hated Jesus. This is the guy who hated the church. This is the one whose mission was to search and destroy, to go to house to house and find those who said they were followers of Jesus and rip them out of their houses and destroy their lives. But his life was transformed when he saw the risen Jesus, when that Jesus appeared to him. And so he adds his own testimony to all these other witnesses. And he concludes this section with these words, verse 11, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. He's telling us nothing's changed. This is the message I got, the gospel I got from the the apostles. I've passed it on to you, and now a few years later I'm reminding you this is the message. Hold on to this message. Don't let it go. Because this is the truth by which you were saved. This is the truth that sustains you. This is central to real life. The gospel. This is what I've given my life to. This gospel that was entrusted to me by faithful people, including my mother and father. And I have passed it on sometimes very, very poorly, to thousands and thousands of other people also who were entrusted with that message to pass it on to others also. This is the gospel that you, if you've received this, if it's been passed down to you, you need to pass it down to others. And it's around this truth that you must organize your life. It's this reality that gives your life meaning and purpose. Josh Rotano was reminded by something he said that, that all life comes from God. And apart from God, there is no life. The, the Creator God gave us life, and yet all have turned from that life. We've cut ourselves off. Sin has cut us off from that life. And the wages of sin is death, not life. What we deserve for our sin, our rebellion against God, is death, not life. We've cut ourselves off from the life that is God. But God's love was so great that He brought new life back into this world. 
that life of resurrection that life which is in christ jesus says i am the way and the truth and the life he's the life and so to use josh's words he said the resurrection life you are seeking is found in jesus alone see we're trying to find life whatever you believe or don't believe whether you're a christ follower or not we're, we're trying to find life in all kinds of ways we're looking for that satisfaction and meaning and purpose in all kinds of things. And wh- whether it's in new experiences or new, new vehicles or new houses or new jobs or new spouses or children or retirement or recognition, all kinds of ways. But life is only in Jesus. And that's what gives meaning and purpose to all of those things. When Christ rose from the dead, a new power entered the world, and it flows to and through all who believe. And it makes life different. How? How? Well, a couple of ways. You can live in joy, and you can work in hope. Because of this new life that's flowed into the world, you you can live in joy, and you can work in hope. You can live in joy in that the power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. So the reality of the resurrection, that life should change your attitude about daily life. It should have an impact and effect on your emotions and your temptations and your reactions to things that happen and your behaviors. And it should bring light into your darkness as the power to lift your spirit from despair. And it's able to heal the brokenness and soothe the loneliness you feel. You can live in joy because of the resurrected life of Jesus, and you can work in hope. Your work, it's not in vain, it's not a waste of time. What you do, how you do it, why you do it is transformed by resurrection life. Your labor, your service, your drudgery, your responsibilities, your ministry, your objectives, your spiritual giftedness, your business, your care for your family, your employment, your career, your daily grind, it's all impacted by the resurrection. It's not in vain. It has value, meaning, purpose. So, next uh, month, I will complete I live that long 41 years in full-time ministry I'm only 27 I'm wearing out I'm wearing out we're all wearing out now the week on the beach that I told you about included swimming in the ocean and napping in the sun and picking up seashells. It's good for a week. And I saw quite a few people that that looked like that was their full-time job for the rest of their life. That beach walking and sun tanning and shelling until you die was their plan. Now that's a good to do it's great to enjoy god's creation i need to do that more regularly i do but i know that is not how i should spend all my remaining days and energy how much ever that is because the resurrection changes everything 
that gospel that was passed on to me and now I pass on to others gives life meaning both now and forever. And even though I'm wearing out, even though I can't do as much as I used to do as well as I used to do it for as long as I used to do it, I can keep on working and serving and living in resurrection power for the glory of God, whatever that looks like. And so can you. Lord, thank you for the new life that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, for every one of us who has experienced the resurrection power of the gospel, may we live in that gospel wherever you have called us, however you have called us, that we would be your people in this place to pass on the message that changed the world. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.
receive this benediction now. Go now in the presence and peace and power of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you.